year's Artscape Women's Humanity Festival is Milestones, celebrating, supporting, empowering the women of yesterday, today and tomorrow. And in this podcast series, we talk to some of the key women of today. Fatima Dike is the first black woman in South Africa to have had a play published and performed. The play was The Sacrifice of Crayley, and she wrote it significantly in 1976 at the now legendary Space Theatre in Cape Town. Fats, as she is fondly known, has studied and lived in the US for a few years, but she's also written poetry, several more plays, been an actress, stage manager, director, and currently she's mentoring many upcoming writers and playwrights. Well, at 75, her life in the theatre was celebrated recently as part of Artscape's Women's Humanity Festival. I'm Nancy Richards, and wondering what it is that makes a playwright, I asked her first about her early years. I was born in a hospital in District 6, Peninsula Hospital. My mother and my father came from the Eastern Cape, a place called Somerset East. They then rented a space, a room, in District 6 in the olden days, in the late 20s. And then in 1930, they moved to Langa. My mother got a job in Langa as the maid of the superintendent of Langa. Now, if you don't know those politics, in the olden days, Langa Township was run by a group of white people, and they lived in Langa, okay? And Mr. Rogers was the superintendent of Langa. And my mother worked for, for Mr. Rogers for 30 years as a maid. My father got the job as a wardsman, I think they call them counselors today, as a wardsman because my mother worked for the superintendent. So the job of the wardsman were in the mornings to switch the street lights off, in the evenings to switch, switch the street lights on in Langa. But besides that, they helped People were migrating to the township of Langa to find housing. So if there were families, they would find them housing. If there were migrant laborers who just came by themselves, they would live in the northern uh, hostels or the southern hostels. It was my father's, you know, the wardsman's group job to give them spaces to live in in the hostels. So I was growing up in a community where, as a child, I didn't know the real politics. What was being fostered in me, mostly, was to understand my identity as an African, because we have clan systems in Africa. And if you don't understand what a clan is, a clan is a group of people that can be as large as a tribe. They all have different family names, but what connects them is the clan name. Now, the clan name comes from the very, very first person who brought all of these families together and created the clan. So my clan name is Khaged, but my nation, I belong to the Fubi, to the Fubi people. So what keeps Africa, especially Africans, so united is this clan system. Because I would be sitting in a taxi 
And there are still people today who still don't call themselves by their given names. They call themselves by their clan names. And the minute I hear somebody saying Khachali in the taxi, I know that's my family member. I get off the taxi and I wait and I shout, who is Khachali? And Khachali will come to me and we hug. There is no need of an introduction because we are blood. So that's what the clan system does. So I grew up in a situation where all the people, the elderly people who were members of my clan would always want to know, why are you not wearing earrings? I did not understand the symbolism of earrings in the Katari clan. And then the other thing that I was made to do was always praise your ancestors. What is the praise song of your clan? I didn't know those things. So I had to go home and say, Tatonkulu was asking me to praise myself, and I did not know. And then my mother would say, Umukhatele, Umukhatele, Tezumbi, Umashwabata, Oashwabatele, Omonempondo, Nomsila, Watikele, Tete, Umtinkulu. So, so. That's it. So, if you are listening to this praise in Kosa, you'll be hearing these names, Khatel, Ntimkulu, Mashwabata. This praise song was created so that as a black person, you always know your family tree, the clan, the family tree of your clan. So Khatel was the first ancestor. Then Ntimkulu came when Khatel died, stepped in into Khatel's, you know? And so on. So all these names that we mention in our clan praise songs, is the family tree of where you come from, the people who nurtured your dad, okay? So I come from that background. But then, I come from a, a middle-class family, I would say, because everybody in my family was educated. We all went to school. And I grew up loving books. So I used to go to the local library, and we used to borrow books from there, and then, in 1960, when the people in Shafi were murdered, uh, the people in the community reacted by burning the library down. And I remember standing there watching the flames going up and down like Maasai warriors in tents. And I was crying and I was thinking of all those books inside the library. We come from a community of people in Langa which was very united. Everybody knew everybody. And sometimes I would be sent to the shop by my mom to buy, and I'll meet an elderly person on the road, and they would look at me and say, whose child are you? And I would say, my father is Deke. And the old man would just pull out his purse, you know, you share those brown pennies, those big ones, and he would give me a penny, and then he would say to me, the house that I'm living in now, I got it to your father. It never made sense to me. I thought that was stupid. Why would you give me money when my father gave you a house? When I was a kid, I didn't understand the struggles that people had to go through just to get a house in a township. So I grew up in a land where people would celebrate each other's backgrounds. You know, there would be a holiday 
when all the Fubi people would meet in the open space outside the Methodist church. And people would slaughter, and people would praise their ancestors, you know, and anybody can come. There were Sutu people who lived in Lala who would also come and uh, celebrate a King Mushesha's day. So I lived in a country that was rich in culture, in that sense. And there were schools everywhere because the township was built by missionaries. So there was always a school in the church, a school in the church. And that's how I grew up. Yo, that is such a testimony. And I am just thinking, indeed, we may I'm very pleased that we're going to have this recorded because what you, what you said is really important and I'm wondering to myself how many young people living in London now are as in touch with their identity and their place on the planet in this country as, as you are. And clearly that's informed a lot of what you have taken forward into your plays, into your work, into your poetry. But I want to come back to two things, to the books and the burning library, the image, the Maasai warriors, it's an extraordinary image. And in Dean's article, she draws attention to the fact that you were a great reader. And I looked with interest at the fact that you had been reading Black Beauty, um, <laughs> the irony of which is not lost on anybody, and Dickens. And so you were reading all sorts of things. And I think you also mentioned that you, you came from a middle-class family. There was lots of education in, in Langa, and yet your parents sent you away to Rustenburg to a boarding school. I know there's a lot of questions in there. Tell us first about the reading, what you are obviously an avid reader. What happened was that uh, when I passed my son at six, grade, grade eight now, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, let's go back a little bit. There was one Sutu speaking school in Lala that taught the Sutu as the mother tongue, when all the other schools were teaching Khalsa. So they also taught Africans, ironically. So my father took me out of the Tosa speaking school after some A, sent me to the Sutu speaking school so that I could learn Sutu and Africans. But now, when I finished my primary school education, there were no Sutu speaking high schools in the Western Cape. So I ended up in a Catholic boarding school in Rustenburg in the Transvaal. The nuns were from Ireland, but their main convent was in Birmingham. And for the first time in my life, I came into a classroom that had a bookshelf. I stole books at night, (laughs) and took them into my dormitory, and I read. So from the age of 12, I had read all the English classics that children in England would read normally. So that was where my appetite for reading was really uh, whetted. Yes, because there there were 40 books in each shelf. So I would make it a point that by the end of the year, I've read all those 40 books. In itself, very, very impressive. And I'm thinking again of the young black person who's living in Lando and how many books they would have had the opportunity to read. So that in itself is a great lesson. But you know, one of the things that one of the features of a writer is that they are readers because necessarily the one follows the other, whichever way. So at what point did you start writing? Whether it was poetry, whether it was essay, because you were obviously a thinker as well as a reader. When did you start putting the word, your thoughts, down? 
I got interested in poetry when Sue Clark introduced me to poetry because she's a poet herself. And her other friends, a group of friends, they were all poets. And the first time uh, she introduced me to the black poets, the first time she bought me a book that was written by Wallace Root, which was published by Raven Press. And then the second book that she bought me was uh, Oswald and Charlie, Songs of a Cowhide Drum. But as a young person now at that point, who was aware of the racist issue in my country, I didn't understand how these black poets who were writing openly about the situation in South Africa managed to get these books out into the public. And so Sue would inspire me you know, with poetry in that sense. And then when I realized that I loved poetry, that's when I started to write my own poems. I'm, I'm longing to find out how you and Sue met, because back in those days, you know, black women and white women didn't necessarily have a lot in common, or at least they would have had lots in common, but they didn't have much contact with one another. But I'm just going to park that, that question, because Sue herself might tell us. But I just wonder where politics slid into your life. As a thinking young person, as a reading young person, having read all the stuff that Europe was pumping out, and having seen and witnessed with your own eyes what was going on here, how did, um, politics is such a slippery word, but how did you talk about racism? How did you deal with all that? And were your parents instrumental in pushing you that way, or were they pulling you away? To go back a little bit, my mother and Mr. Rogers had a relationship, a very close relationship, whereby every year towards Christmas time, Master would call the gentleman who used to be his gardener, because they were kicked out of Lamba when the group areas started. And so the gentleman who was Mr. Rogers' gardener, Mr. Rogers got him a job at the Lamba workshop, you know, where they you go to report if anything is broken in your house, you know, the guys who collected the garbage and the cancer. Before he left Lamba, he got him a job there. So he would phone him, his name was Thomas, and then Thomas would then come to my mother's house on the city uh, council bicycle to say, Master is called. And she said, he said, I must tell you, he will be coming over. So this was a Christmas ritual between my mother and Mr. Rogers. So Mr. Rogers knew that my mother loved plants. So when he came, he came to say, Happy Christmas, uh, Annie, because they might not see each other on the Christmas period. And he would bring my mother plants. And then when I was in my 20s, in my early 20s, and my sister got married to a businessman. And I started working in the butcher shop that they owned in Lala. So the exchange between my mother and Mr. Rogers every year was, Mr. Rogers would bring the plants, my mother would order a leg of lamb for Mr. Rogers. And then they would sit, my mother would go back into the maid mode. She would wear overall clean irons. She would lay a white starch tablecloth in her house and make him, because she worked for him for 30 years, she knew all the things that he liked. And so he would make him you know, those things. But there was one thing in this relationship that was very positive for me as a child, because when they sat down together, although my mother would never sit next to him, 
effective, no matter if sit this side, if the writers would sit there. But the conversations between the two of them did not show the master-made relationship. But I was very young, but it was very funny how I saw that. And this relationship between the two of them lasted until he died. And the day Mr. Rogers died, I will never forget it. My sister was already a successful businesswoman. She was selling her own Mercedes Benz. And uh, Thomas came to tell my mom that the master has passed away. There was a moment of silence. And then uh, my mother said, find out when is the funeral. And Thomas came back. My mother picked up the phone in my house and said, Mama Foggy, Master Rogers has passed away and he's been buried on a Wednesday, wah, 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 wah. And I want you to bring your car round because I have to go to the master's funeral. Even though they had that relationship you know, of familiarity, but she never disrespected him by not calling him master. And so I was learning about these relationships, which were very difficult for me at times. And I remember when I started becoming political, and I realized that every time Mr. Rogers comes, my mother puts on that overall, and she goes into the maid mode. I got upset one year, and I cooked the leg of lamb. <laughs> my mother almost kicked me out of her house for doing that, but my sister saved me by giving me another leg of hair. The person who freed me from this mentality of maid and master was Sutlash. Because one day I came to the house, she had a lady, a housekeeper, who used to come as a child lady to, to have her flat in, in North Street, Mrs. Marple. So I can't remember the conversation clearly, but we were talking about something. And Suplak said to me, I was talking to Mrs. Marple about that exactly Dickles, because she always used to call me Dickles. <laughs> And I was shocked because it was something rather personal. And I said to him, to her, I'm sorry, you talk to Mrs. Marfu about things like that? Suklak was, surprise is not the, the right word. She was, I don't know, smashed, what? Shock. smashed or something like that. Yeah, it was, it was something, you know, I'd never seen her reacting that way because she didn't really understand where I was coming from. She said, of course, I need to talk about all things with Mrs. Marple. She's here in my house every day. Who should I <laughs> So I began to understand the relationships of madams and maids, the trust. Because these people know the families, you know, there are backgrounds and stuff like that. So there has to be that trust. And she changed my way of thinking about, about those relationships.
Wow. Again, there's so much to say here, um, but I love it that you have processed all these memories. You don't, they're not just sort of vague memories, you've actually processed them. And I assume that one day soon we might see an autobiography, because it's all there. At this point, when we're talking about maids and madams, I have to ask you, you've probably got it in your mind, but just in case you haven't, I've printed it out. But won't you read for us the poem called, I'm not sure if it's called Please, Madam, or Madam, Please. Madam Please. This is the one that Dean Smuts referred to that you read to this glittering, bejeweled, preferred group of women and people in Constantia and um, had them gobsmacked. So deliver the poem again. <laughs> I can't deliver the poem just like that. <laughs> Do it, do it for me. I do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell the story, I'm sorry. <laughs> when I got this poem from Bani Simon, because Bani Simon had to come down to Cape Town to direct the fundraising at the Bank Theatre in Constantia. And he brought me these four poems. I had to read a poem by Walisa Ruten. I had to read one poem from Oswald and Charlie. And then the other poem was written by a lady called Joyce Sikakana, who was an ex -hide. I was afraid to read that one in case the police arrested me on that stage. But the fourth poem was Madam Please, which was a song that came from a production called Piri that Bani Simon did in Johannesburg with those famous a, a black musicians, Sophie Prina, Tanz Glass, you know, that whole bunch, yes. So he, he gave me this poem and he explained to me where it came from because the play was called Piri, but the play that gave birth to Piri was a French play called The Fox. I don't know what The Fox is in French. So when he gave me this poem, it resonated with me so much because I'm the daughter of a maid. Okay, I was brought up by a maid. I ran home. I remember I read this poem that whole afternoon and I could say it off my heart. The following morning I could not wait. I took the first bus to the space looked for Bani Simon amongst the workers in the building, and I found him. And I pulled him aside and I said, I want to do Madam Peace for you. Can you find a quiet space? So there was a staircase that led to the next floor at the space. I closed the door, he sat on the stairs. And I did this poem as a protest poem. When I finished doing the poem, but I wanted this thing, you know, when he was sitting, he was always be scratching, you know, scratching. Then he shake the table up. <laughs> so, so, so when I finished performing the poem for him, he didn't say anything. He just did that same old thing, you know, shaking the table up. And then he say, Bunny, come on, tell me. If it's bad, it's fine, I'll fix it. Tell me. But he took his time. When Bunny Simon, again, Racism, okay? Racism. When Bunny Simon answered me, he said to me, if I were the madam and you spoke to me in that tone, I would tell you to F off. 
He did not finish his words. His words had not even grown cold between us when I started calling him all the racist names I knew in English, and I walked out of that program. Because to me, he didn't understand the pain. This is, this is how I learned, okay? I, mean, I was learning. I was learning to live with white people. I was learning to understand them as human beings. But I also had my angers and my issues. So anyway, two days down the line, I met Brian Asbury, who became the director of the Space Theater. A lovely, lovely, there was, he was like a teddy bear. Yeah. I loved him so much. Yeah. Brian sees me that morning and says, hi, Fats. Hi, Brian. How are you, Fats? I'm good, Brian. Fats, I must say this to you. I was so looking forward to hearing you doing the Black Poets. But Fats, I understand. I understand what went on between me and Fats. Really, I understand. I'm not upset. I have disappointed someone that I loved. I, I loved Brian, and I felt like, sorry, shit. I went home, I thought about this, and the following morning I went back to the space theater, put my tail between my legs, and went up to Brian Simon and said to him, how do you want me to do this play? Brian Simon says to me, don't talk down at her, that Ella. But they talk down to <laughs> they promised. They talked down to our mothers. I said, fine. I do it the way you want me to do it. I went back home. I sat down and I put the lady's face in the screen of my mind. And I began to talk to Madam. Madam, please. Before you shout about your broken plate, ask about the meal my family ate. Madam, please, before you laugh at the watchman's English, try to answer in his Zulu language. Madam, please, before you say that the driver stinks, come. Take a bath in a sewer to sink. Madam, please, before you ask me if your children are fine, ask me when I last saw mine. Madam, please, before you call today's funeral alive, ask me why my people die. Ask me why. My people die. Madam, please. Ask about my mother. Is she old? Does she still sew? Does she cook? Ask about my brothers. Are they in school or are they in jail? Ask about my sisters. Are they having children before marriage? Ask now, 
what we want. Ask now how we live. Ask now if we dream. Ask now, Madam. those words are not just etched in your mind but in your heart and that, that is a delivery. But can I just tell you yeah. the final lesson that I learned between that interaction between Bani Simon and myself. I wasn't an actress. Bani Simon was giving me directions as a director what I want to. But I only realized it when I was already working in theater that by Simon was coming from. And we became very good friends. It's an extraordinary journey, and it's not a usual journey, because I'm casting back to those days. Your, you say your mother was a, a maid. There was every reason why you too could have been a maid. Did you ever think to yourself, I'm damned if I'm going to be a maid? Did, did you know that that path was not for you? Yes, I knew. Because I got the opportunity to go as far as high school in my education. And of course, in school, we're always motivating one another about our goals. And our goals were not like where somebody would say, I want to do this or I want to do that. Our goals were immediate. I want to pass a trick. You know, I want in, in that sense. And then if you pass a trick, you go into the next stage. But all those things that you might have done, you might have been a lawyer, you might have been, um, you might have been a nurse, you might have been a teacher, all those obvious traditional things, the last thing anybody would have thought, that you would have gone into the world of theatre with the suit pushing you from behind. And apparently it is said, according to the article, is that you were a very bad assistant stage manager. Yes, uh, I fell asleep. The worst I'd ever had. I fell asleep through a, a one-man show. That's for me. <laughs> so, how did, what, so what happened? And two things, what happened? How did, you, how did your feet on that path become yes. so firmly directed? And also, what did you do with the anger? Because one of the things Marlene said that she ta you taught her was to let the anger go. When did you let it go? How did you let it go? How did you become so forgiving? First of all, can I just go back a little? Because I loved English and history passionately, I wanted to be a teacher. That was my, my, my dream, to become a teacher. So one of my friends was already a, a teacher at Lama High School. And, and so I thought, let me go to talk and talk to someone who was already in the profession. So as I was excitedly telling him, you know, I want to teach and also want to specialize only in English and history. Jane Pula said to me, that was his nickname in Nala. Jane Pula said to me, work, facts, first and foremost, undervalued education, you do not choose which subjects you want to teach. Wow. The government tells you what to teach. My heart dropped. Secondly, you can't choose which school you want to go and teach at. My dreams were smashed. I went home and I cried. Because I felt that the only thing that I could give to my learners was my passion for English and history. And if I can't do that, I can't do it. 
And then, as I was sitting there, digesting what, what, what Chin Pule just told me, a realization came into my mind that there were these teachers in our black schools who would come to teach, say, geography. He comes to teach geography because he's been told to teach geography. He has no passion for it. Yeah. I remember I was a student at Morris Isaacson in Matric, and this, no, it was in Bafuken High School. This particular teacher would always come after lunch to teach us geography. And we'd all be sitting like this, oh God, he's gonna make us fall asleep. <laughs> but at that time, I wasn't aware that they were forced to teach subjects that they didn't have any passion about. And so when I took this decision not to teach, it was an informed decision because I said to God, I can do all the evil things on, on this earth, but I will never spoil the mind of a black child by teaching them something that I don't have a passion for. No. And so I never became a teacher, but I'm a teacher now. The true word of the, the meaning of teaching is to courage, to, to draw things out of people, and I think that's your mandate for getting young people writing as well. There, there's so many things, and I'm a little cognizant of time, so I'm going, I've got a number of things to, to talk about here. I want to talk about your plays. Um, there was The Sacrifice of Crayley, I think that was 70, 76? 76. 76, I mean 76, to be writing such a play. There was... Um, the first South African, which I think the story of which was very much to do with your your mother's situation yes. with this young boy. Yes. Many stories here. Uh, there was the Crafty Tortoise, which was a children's play. There was um, there's a whole list of them, The Return, which is also interesting. And each and every one of these plays has got a story behind it. But th then there was a sort of fallow period, and I'm, I suppose I'm thinking, if you were to write a play now, given the circumstances in which we find ourselves in Cape Town, in Langa, in South Africa, the bigger picture, um, what might it be about? Can I tell you the honest I don't just write plays. Something motivates me. But when I wrote my first play, I was not a writer. I wasn't motivated. I was uh, working at the Space Theatre doing odd jobs. Yeah, because I was this character uh, as a stage manager. But Brian didn't want to get rid of me. So what he did is he took me in as an assistant stage manager, which means I would sit on the book when the actors were in rehearsal. And that's how I started to learn writing structures because I would be holding the script in my hand day in and day out at rehearsals. And when the actors put their books down, I give them the lines that they forget. But then in the evenings, I become an usher. So I usher people into the theater to see the plays. So I had that opportunity of seeing the plays in that sense from a rehearsal perspective, the structures, the dialogue, you know, all of that. But then I would see a full thing. 
and the space are one of the most, I think even today there isn't a theater in South Africa that could equal the space theaters work, the quality of work that they did. The very first time I ever saw Fugat, a Fugat was uh, in 1973, since so the Yes, I still very wet behind the ears. And uh, John Gunny was talking on the stage. And I was wondering, where does all of that dialogue come from? You know, because he's looking at the newspaper, but he's talking. And then Winston Jonah comes on stage and Winston doesn't talk. But Winston's body spoke to me, you know, as I was sitting. So that's how I learned theatre. But then a guy by the name of Rob Amato arrived at the Space Theatre. And uh, I used to write poetry in a black uh, hardcover book. And I would put my book in the lockers in the actors' dressing room because my job was to put out their costumes before the play, you know, lay out the stage and all of those things. So he, he was an academic, and he came from East London. In East London, he had a group from the townships called Imita Players. But he wanted to write a play about a closer king called Ailey, but he couldn't write the play. So Rob Amato, after I was working on the production that he was in, the female transport, when after he saw my poetry, he started asking around, who's this person, who's this person? People showed him that I'm this person. He came to me and he sat me down and said, I've been trying to write the story of this Kosaki, but I am unable to do that. But now that I've met you, I realized that I need a Kosa person to write this story. I'd never seen a play before, okay? But I know theater now, you know, from stage managing and, and all of that. What changed my mind, what made me to accept Rob's offer, was that the research he had done on the Tosa King was never in any of our history books. There were things in that research that were not written in public spaces about the conflicts between the British and the Cossacks. And I wanted that information. I had never seen uh, the English word escapes me, a thesis. As one of the things that were in his research, there was a thesis in all of these things were new to me. But my question was, after having read his um, what he had researched. I wanted that research because you know why? I was going to share it with other young black people and you discuss these politics that were not in our history books in school. That's why I agreed to do the sacrifice of faith, which was a turning point, the huge turn. The first day I wrote, Tokonjinga came. Nobiki Mangane came. A whole bunch of them from Lana came. What motivated me, and this is this will always be my motivation. In the Kosa culture, we say umtu umtu rabantu. I am because we are. If Togo and Nobiki and all of those 
other young people from Lara had not come to join me. Maybe I wouldn't be sitting here today because they were also as motivated as I was to create a play that would come from the youth of Lara in those days. Okay? And the energy that they put into the play, because I did not know anything about traditional forms of music. So I would go to Ngopi Imangani and her brother, Musandi, and most of the music would come out from the cast. So I wasn't afraid because I was supported by my cast in that sense. And that's how I came to Rome to write The Sacrifice of Pain in 1976, when Johannes Pepper's story. Yeah, it should be very well, isn't it? Thank you. when you were emerging like this sprout from the hard ground and there was all sorts of things going on in your life, you were finding other like-minded people. At that point, you went to America from 79 to 83, Iowa, writing workshop, and thinking that must have been a real wow, that must have been a complete sort of, my goodness me, what have I come to? How did that mark you? How did it grow you, inspire you? And what did you come back with? I'm asking a lot to encapsulate in that American experience. Well, going to Iowa in the first place to an international writers' conference was amazing because I was sitting in a room full of writers from places as far as Russia. And we're all sharing ideas and we're talking and discussing. And, and to me, that was just amazing. But when the, when the conference was over, I went to New York because most of my friends, specifically Workshop 71, which was a group of black actors from Joburg who were working side by side with us in that, you know, between, between the market theater and, and the space theater. They were there. But also my very best friend, Maggie Sapoy, had moved to New York and joined me to come. So many people had asked me to come to New York. So I went, I went to New York and I lived there. In the beginning, it was just amazing because uh, Maggie introduced me to Ellen Stewart, who owned, she was a black lady, who owned an off-off-Broadway uh, theater called La Mama. And La Mama would not hire American people in, in her theater. Everybody who ever stood on that stage was a foreigner, people from outside of America. And I remember the guys from Workshop 71 said to me, how did you manage to get into La Mama's? Because it doesn't take just anybody. And I said, well, I was introduced by many someone. One of the things uh, that we used to do would be I would go and hang out at the bar, you know, play some music on the thing, on the machine. And then I told them I'm from South Africa, why don't you have any music by Huma Sikela? And immediately the following day there was music by Huma Sikela and so on. But the first time when I decided I want to go and eat at a restaurant, I was scared. Because I've been in restaurants in South Africa. Of course, like soup like and I we used to do those things a lot in the olden days. We would work in a restaurant knowing that I was gonna be kicked out, they would be told to sit. 
but we had a deal, you know. When they kick me out, they would get up and follow me out. So that memory emerged in my heart, in my mind, because uh, somebody said, I wanted to go and have supper. Somebody gave me the name of a restaurant not far from uh, Second Avenue and Fourth Street where I lived. But when I was standing opposite the restaurant, that fear, what if they kick me out? I forgot I was in America. And the anger in me said, let them kick me out, I'll kill one of them. I'll walk out of that restaurant having killed one of them. And so I walked into this space with that dread, that one that I've always got in South Africa. And there was a young boy, waiter, right at the back. And as I came, he approached me, showed me a table, sat down, gave me a menu, and said to me, take your time. When you've chosen what you want, I'll be standing over there. Just lift your head and I'll come. It was 1980, and I remember that year, there was a drought in New York, so the restaurants were asked not to put water jugs on the tables. You must wait for the customer to ask for water. But he placed a water jug in front of me. And now I'm dealing with that anger. And I'm dealing with this human being who is my son's age, who is treating me with respect. That is a story. That is a story. It reminds me of the story of Archbishop, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who apparently went to England and he was in a queue in the going into a bank and somebody beat him to it. And the lady behind the counter said, excuse me, sir, can I help you? And he was so thrilled because somebody had called him sir. These small things are the stuff of, of memories. And I urge you once again to write your autobiography because you have a great deal that we have. But I'm going to bring you back quickly from America. And I'm sure there are many of those stories. Because when you came back, I think it was around 2000, no, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was 83, it was 83, but later on, whistling through a, a few decades here, you and Roy Sargent, which is what brings us back to Artscape, started the Siasanga Theatre Company in, uh, in Gugulatu, in fact. No, it was in Langa. No. No? Tell me, or tell me all about it. I'm obviously misinformed. I'm like the internet. <laughs> When, when Mavis Taylor, Professor Mavis Taylor was diagnosed with terminal cancer, she gathered all her students that she taught at UCT Drama School and all her friends in the performing arts, and I was one of those people. And she asked us to run a New Africa Theatre Association. That's where my relationship with Roy Sargent started. I, I used to go to the Baxter to watch the plays that were written by Fiona Collins which Roy Sargent had directed some of, and I really liked the way he worked. So the scene at New Africa Theatre Association was that at the end of each year, there were two writers, myself and Ian, uh, he was also a writer. So we would take turns to write the end of the play production for the students at New Africa, which would be played at the Baxter. But that year, we had 27 students. And for me, writing a play for 27 people was a challenge. So I went up to uh, the director and I said, look, 
I wrote a play in 1976 called The Sacrifice of Kaili. It's got 15 actors. May I use The Sacrifice of Kaili as my end of the year production for the students? And they said yes. So Roy was working at the Baxter at that time. I went over to the Baxter and I sat down with him and I explained to him that I cannot direct, but I've written this play. Could you please come and direct the sacrifice of play for the students of New Africa on my behalf? So we had a nice deal, everything was signed, and Roy came. Roy Sargent, one of the first things he did when he looked at the play, and then I think he was not very happy with the play the way it was. So I, I immediately said to him, don't worry, because the rest of the material that was in the research that I didn't use was in the program. I got in the program. And he changed the opening sequence of the play, how it opened, and did other little things to make the play more powerful. And that's where our relationship started. And I said to myself, well, if I let go of this white man, I'll be stupid. <laughs> I'm going to put him in my pocket. <laughs> because I can learn a lot from him. And that's where our relationship started. So in 2002, when we were ready to leave New Africa, we formed Siasana Kitchen. And so in 2006, Roy left the Baxter to come to Artscape, and he brought the Artscape new writing program with him because the new writing program was his. So Mr. Michael Mars, Mr. Mars accepted him with the program, and then it was renamed the Artscape new writing program. And then I learned another skill there. So we were receiving scripts from all over, and my job, was to work with the township writers. And that's when I started to mentor black writers through that program. Can I ask you about the mentoring? Because I think that it's really important that what you're doing is passing it on. And we began by saying, what makes a playwright? And all the building bricks that you described before you met Sue and got to the space were, were all the things that started, got your mind working. Things are very different now, um, for better or worse, or better and worse. Well, how do you do? You, how do you mentor somebody? Do you look for the spark and then and then fan the flame, or do you put the spark in? How does it work? Mentorships uh, can work both ways, but what is important to me is first of all to create trust between me and the mentee, and then secondly to look at the level at which they are writing, and then to uplift that. There is always a thing in every story. So I never go technical with them. I teach people to write in the African way. We go into the story, we discuss the characters, we discuss them, whatever blocks they have in their writing, I unravel the blocks. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so that I make the writing to flow. Because I suppose it's uh, the writer, the craft of writing is one thing, 
the craft of thinking, of the craft of create, of finding the ideas, that's something that's more difficult <coughs> to get from people. In fact, you know what we should do? There are a few people here that I have learned from. They might sure. like to, to, to say something about that. Definitely. 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 But before we do, and I'm, I'm just, I know that we're definitely going to open up, but I'm going to sort of round this off with, I'm coming in left of centre here, with your faith. Because one of the things that you, I think you have a very strong faith, and with all the journey that you've been on, the, the roller coaster that you've been through, your faith has kept you going. Tell us what it means to you and how that works in your life. Well, I was invited to India in 95 by an organization. Somebody put my name down, who was a member of that organization, and the organization is called the Brahma Kumaris World Spiritual University. And uh, of course, I was skeptical. I've been to many countries in the world. Why would I want to go to India? Poverty, overpopulation, you know? But then, Another voice inside me said, that's, that's not you. You've never discriminated when people invite you. And I immediately, you know, like it shook me. And, and then I accepted the invitation and I went to this place, which is uh, in the Aravali mountain range in India. And I came into a space that was something completely new, something I'd never seen or heard of before, because it was an organization that was run by women in the front, but there were men in the organization. And, and just being there, watching on a daily basis, if we're, we're going to have a meditation session, for instance, how the guy, who sets the, the stage for the ladies who are going to be running the workshop would know exactly what each lady requires. If this person will need a cushion behind the back, that he will bring it. If it's somebody who needs a little heater, you know, to warm her feet when she's sitting, in, you know, all of those things, water, you know, everything was just done smoothly, you know. It was like, yo. I've never seen anything like this in my life before. But the longer I stayed, I was picking up all of these qualities in this organization. And then one morning, my escorts said to me, that's we'll pick you up at 6 o'clock in the morning. When have I ever woken up at 6 o'clock in the morning? If you work in theater, you st when you leave the theater, you still have that high. The first thing you want to do is to go around the corner to the beer place and have a beer to come down. And then you can sleep because I'm coming back to work later in the evening, you know? Me, 6 o'clock, yo. Hey. Anyway, I accepted. They came to pick me up, and we went into this hall, and there were 500 people sitting there, all dressed in white saris. Nobody told me anything, I just sat. Now I was getting bored, because maybe somebody should come and preach, but there was just a of silence. And then this man, you know, wearing a kufta, you know, those uh, tops and pants that they wear walks down the aisle, goes and sits in the front row at the corner and plays 
heavenly music. So I get up and I stand on my toes and I see, oh, he's got a, a, a cabinet, you know, with a stereo, the whole thing. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, who cares? Nobody wants to tell me what's going on. Whether some person is going to come and preach, I don't care myself. I am next. That was my mistake. <laughs> because there were 500 people in the room who were meditating. And when you meditate, you all have one thought. I had never meditated. But when I just sat there, my mind was empty, I was bored. The energy in the room took me to a place that I cannot explain. But where I went, it was so peaceful that when the meditation ended, I was still there in that peaceful place. When my escorts were busy nudging and whispering in my ear, let's, let's go. You go, I stay. <laughs> so what I learned was that we do not know what real peace is. To somebody else, peace is a walk along the beach. To another person, peace is a walk along the forest. But there is one little thing that is missing, is that peace is in you. And if you can go into that silence, when the peace emerges, the noise stops. I think I understand now what you did with your anger. You turned your anger into peace and kindness. Fatima DK, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much.